This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome, everybody, to Leadership in Action. This is Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here in the studio. I'm the director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And in this hour, I am delighted to be joined by telephone from Switzerland, Nicholas Davis. Nick is head of society and innovation and a member of the executive committee of the World Economic Forum, which, of course, is the organization based in Geneva. That's its headquarters that stages the annual gathering in January uh, in Davos, Switzerland, of close to 3,000 movers and shakers from all over the world. So, uh, Nick, uh, welcome to the program here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Great to have you, Nick. And I'm going to just offer our listeners a couple more words about you, and then we're going to plunge right into a discussion on the World Economic Forum. And then the topic, the fourth industrial revolution, which I know you've been working on with the, uh, well, the founder and the director, the executive chair of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. Uh, When you're not... uh, worried about how technologies are disrupting industries and labor markets or empowering communities to create a more human-centered future, to borrow some of your phrasing. You're also responsible at the World Economic Forum for its relations with the non-government organization community, the labor community, and then the faith community. Most listeners would not necessarily know, but the World Economic Forum, besides bringing political leaders and business leaders to Davos for the annual gathering in January, it also brings in people from those three and actually several other communities. And Nick, just to say one last thing about you, you are the co-author with Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chair of the forum, of a recently published book. We're going to be talking about that, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution, published just a couple months ago. Anyway, Nick, great to have you on the program. And Nick, maybe for, uh, well, for me and for our listeners, just uh, say a bit more about the World Economic Forum, its history, and its purpose. Sure, thanks. The World Economic Forum is really the brainchild of, of our of our founder and executive chairman, uh, Professor Klaus Schwab, who, who you mentioned already. Uh, in 1971, he had uh, just returned to Europe from uh, a stink, stint, actually, in the U.S. at, at, at Harvard. He'd, he'd done what he'd done a course, uh, a degree at what is now the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, and he'd taken a lot of classes over at HBS. And uh, he, when he got back to Europe, he realized that. European management thinking was lagging quite considerably behind uh, the U.S. and schools like like yours at Wharton, and uh, and he decided, well, I better do something about this. I want to bring together a, a bunch of business professionals, uh, academics uh, from around the world, uh, with some political leaders and some other stakeholders from from civil society, and let's think, let's get together and, and and have a chat in in winter time when there's not much else going on. Uh, and this started then in 1971 as a group of a few hundred people meeting in Davos, Switzerland, a little ski resort um, that's, that's in the eastern part of Switzerland. It's about 
to, to a bit more than um, two hours away from Zurich, so it's nestled in the mountains. It's not very easy to get out of, which is a benefit if you want to have people concentrating on a topic. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, so mm. since then it's become very much this idea of um, uh, if you care about big-picture topics like um, the state of European management and now very much the, the state of the world and state of, 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 of global public uh, commons questions like climate change or, or issues like the future of technology, um, one way to do it is to get together a, a whole group of people with very different outlooks, perspectives, experiences, uh, and have them uh, discuss in, in a way in seclusion. Um, now, that was, you know, that was 1971, so we're talking more than 47 years ago. It's definitely grown into bigger than that now. You mentioned 3,000 people in Davos. But the World Economic Forum is now, um, you know, it's moved from being a Swiss foundation, as it was then, uh, to being the international organization for public-private cooperation. So, so over the, that, that history, almost 50 years now, um, it's become a year-round organization. About 700 people work across five different offices, uh, including a new office in San Francisco, as well as New York, Beijing, uh, Tokyo, and uh, uh, and and everyone here, as the, the whole community as well of, of, of business members and, and academics uh, like yourself and others um, who engage from time to time, really focused on on what kind of uh, public-private interaction, what kind of new collaborations and partnerships can solve some of the world's biggest challenges. Nick, that's really helpful. And let me just point out the irony, if that's the right word here, that initially this was to bring some uh, North American ideas into business in, in Europe, but now North Americans, Africans, Latins, Asians all come to Davos to uh, really hear about good practices, better ideas from around the world, whether from government or business. So, uh, And just to say it again, it's become more or less the gathering. There are many imitators, um, often organizations saying we are the Davos of some other city, but it's become um, uh, the place for people annually to gather to focus on, and I'm now, Nick, I'm going to allude to your motto of the World Economic Forum, improving the state of the world. So expand on that, would you? Improving the state of the world. That's the agenda for the World Economic Forum. Sure. It's Look, it's very deliberately, incredibly aspirational uh, and quite and quite general. Um, There's a lot of things that, that different people might think of as improving the state of the world. Um, but at its core, this is an aspiration built on Professor Schwab's you know, personal values and the values uh, particularly um, of the people that, that come together. And not just in Davos, I might add. We, you know, we have events all around the world, but, but more than the events, we have a whole range of different uh, research institutions in, and, and avenues that we, uh, that we push, uh, invest in, and, and collaborate including 14 big what we call system initiatives on topics such as food security or the future of long-term investing, so on and so forth. Um, all of those come with this idea that um, there are problems that can't be solved by any uh, single industry, any single government, uh, any single rich person, uh, or any single incredibly smart person uh, around the world. Uh, they all require um, essentially, uh, changes at the, at the, you know, what you might call the structural level or the systems level, changes that require uh, different incentives, different uh, ways of, of working together, um, and different behaviors. And the idea then is uh, improving the state of the world is to say, how do we become uh, better versions of what we want to be uh, uh, doing, better versions of ourselves in industry and economic growth, of course, uh, 
um, but not with the not with a, a kind of a, a slant purely towards commercial interests. Of course, it's about mm-hmm. a, a sustainable ecosystem of everyone being better off. And when I mean when I say everyone, we we actually do mean everyone. And 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 you, we might come to talk about this uh, in in a minute, Mike. But um, but in our book, one of the the big things we talk about in technology is. When you, when you think about any particular subject, you often immediately go to who are the most powerful people in that, in that area and who are the people that, that currently get to enjoy mobile phones or get to play with artificial intelligence, et cetera. One thing that the World Economic Forum has tried to do that, that all our work is oriented to do is to say, yes, there are powerful people and powerful organizations that, that, that are naturally part of these conversations. But the toughest part is to bring in perspectives, ideas, and to think about the impacts on those who are not lucky enough to, you know, um, be part of the Wharton School or, or work at the World Economic Forum or go to Davos or be part of our, our, our research programs by virtue of the time and the connectivity they have. And that's probably our yeah. biggest daily challenge at the forum is taking that values approach to thinking, well, well, who else do we need to involve and how do we better represent genuine needs that are not aligned with the people that we get to t- talk to naturally every day. Mick, that's great. I'm going to draw out a, a little bit more about you personally, then we'll come back to that theme, but it all is interconnected. I did at the start indicate that you're a member, or I should have said this if I didn't, you're a member of the executive committee at the World Economic Forum, so you're part of the leadership team. And Nick, just a, a really a, a couple more personal themes here. What drew you to the World Economic Forum, and what do you personally hope to achieve during your service there? Look, it's one of those things where um, life is, uh, is, it offers you opportunities you didn't expect. Um, and, um, you know, my personal journey was uh, I grew up in, in Australia. I really wanted to be a photographer. I, I, I really liked um, uh, the artistry of photography. I loved, I, was a, I am still a geek, so I loved the equipment side. I liked the people element. Um, uh, but my, uh, my, my parents and, and the, uh, the kind of system around it, being a middle-class uh, kind of studious guy in Sydney in the, in the 1990s, um, meant that, of course, I couldn't just be a photographer. I had to also study law at the same time. Um, and when I, when I discovered that I wasn't a very good uh, photographer, uh, which um, I did after a couple of years of, of going out on my own, um, I, I fell back on, on, on law and then uh, realized that actually I could use my uh, my legal skills and training uh, in both at university and in the law firm that I worked at briefly um, for new ventures, for, for ideas that were starting up and for, for in particular one, one company that wanted to look at the application of international law to the problem of foreign investment. Um, and I actually became a, a part owner of, of, that, of that business in the UK uh, after, after leaving Sydney. Um, and there was an opportunity that arose suddenly where someone offered to buy part of the business. And at that moment, there's this existential uh, kind of moment in, in, in organizational leadership where it's, well, do we keep going and, um, and, and forge on or do we kind of uh, uh, take this moment to reset, do something else? And as founders, we decided to go different directions. Uh, I certainly didn't want to keep going to business without the, the technical expertise, the economic expertise of, of, my, of my, my main co-founder. Um, and I was reading The Economist uh, thinking, what shall I do next? And there was an advertisement for uh, the Global Leadership Fellows Program at the World Economic Forum. It's a program, actually, that we've, we've built up over the years with, with Wharton and the Wharton School. And, uh, and so I joined, and that's now 11 years ago, I, I joined the Strategic Foresight Team here in Geneva 
focusing on one interesting question, which is uh, uh, what would be the economic implications of major conflict in the Middle East? How would that affect energy markets, investment? Uh, what would that do to international relations? Um, and so that was the, the challenge that drew me in. Uh, and uh, every year has been a new challenge. And that's why I'm still here after 11 years. Nick, just to stay on that a bit more, and again, to draw on the personal element, in committing the number of years you have initially as a global leadership fellow and now as part of the senior um, management of the World Economic Forum, what do you personally hope to achieve before you move on to something else or step down from your current responsibilities? For me, it's, it's constantly re-evaluating, um, I guess, three different aspects. Um, the first one is, uh, am I able to have, I think this is the most important for most people, am I able to have the impact I want to have on the world? Is this a, um, a, a context? Is this a set of, um, of relationships, of, of, uh, of opportunities in this job uh, to be able to uh, change the way things operate in some way? And, and for some people, that could be as, uh, as you know, as, as simple and, and immediate as making someone happier by giving them uh, a service or developing a product um, or being part of a business relationship. Um, I think it's, I mean, I feel incredibly privileged every day to be part of an organization where almost anyone will pick up the phone if you call them. And we have the ability to convene both in projects and in person and develop research that, that gets quoted in the media, that gets picked up and, and really increasingly uh, gets acted on. As in, in the case of a, a, a recent example where, where we helped uh, the Rwandan government uh, rewrite their drone policy on, on unmanned aerial, aerial vehicles. So being able to have that, that impact is something that keeps me going every day. Um, and the second is feeling stretched. So am I growing in my skills, in my ability to, um, to be a good manager, to be a, a, a good collaborator? And I definitely wouldn't have been here for 11 years were it not for the fact that, um, that, that the kind of collaborators and mentors and, and, and bosses that I've had have really pushed me new jobs, new perspectives, new, new challenges every single year. And, and sometimes, as in the case right now, almost every day. Um, so that's fantastic. And the third thing that keeps me going is the people around me. Um, my colleagues here at the World Economic Forum are um, amazing. Uh, and they are both uh, some of the greatest inspiration and also some of the greatest uh, challenges in terms of, of management. But, uh, but it's, those three things have, have kept me going. I hope, therefore, to really um, feel that I, I, I leave the forum institutionally as strong as possible, contributing to that leadership group, uh, not just as someone, not just as Nick, but as someone who can help create foundations for, for many others to, uh, to, to do much more and go much further. Uh, and also uh, leave with a sense of, well, I can point to uh, those specific impacts. And thankfully, there are some great projects with some huge potential I'm working on, and, uh, and that's a great privilege to, to be able to say. Let's move back in that direction. Uh, just uh, with a, one final transitional question about yourself. The annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, as we said at the start here, is held in January every year. Uh, close to 3,000 people do attend. Uh, heads of state in large numbers have attended. Uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, Donald Trump, the President of the U.S., uh, the Prime Minister of Japan, the Premier of China, they've all come to Davos, if not this year, in recent years. Uh, as a, by the way, as a side note, a full disclosure here, I've attended uh, that meeting several more than several times. Prior to my involvement with the World Economic Forum, I actually worked in Davos one summer for a 
Well, a research center that focuses on snow and avalanches. That's sort of my past. But to come back to the main point here, Nick, walk us into the annual meeting. Again, you personally, 3,000 people on a Wednesday are assembling, uh, lots of panels, many plenary presentations by country leaders and uh, very senior corporate people. From this last round, World Economic Forum annual meeting 2018, what are a couple ideas that you took from it personally that influence how you think about the world now? It's a great question. Um, the annual meeting, as you mentioned, is so uh, huge and uh, you know takes course over really five five days. Um, it's so exhausting that it becomes this um, you know almost overflow of, of different energies and ideas and, and opportunities. So it's hard to tease. Tease apart uh, uh, one or two that, that that maybe are world changing, but but let me just say that in that milieu of, of fantastic opportunities, I think some of the most interesting this year were really around this the, the theme uh, of the annual meeting, which was creating sh- a, sh- a shared future in a fractured world. So it was very much talking. The, the, many of the discussions are kind of red thread through the discussions of both the 340 political leaders and the more than thousand CEOs that attended. Um, was very much this idea of how do we confront this feeling, if not uh, scary, reality of, of drifting apart from each other, both on the international scale and within uh, within communities, within societies, uh, within economies. And one session that I found tremendously insightful was a session on where meaning sits for people in the future of work. So how how do we as Individuals, as as managers, as uh, as as people who report to uh, those uh, wealthier and more powerful than us in many ways, um, where do we find the opportunities to feel a sense of purpose, a sense of community, sense of agency, a solid sense of identity? And for me, those discussions actually, you know, they may may, may they may seem like very micro, kind of firm level or even psychological discussions. But when you have uh, people like Linda Grattan and, and religious leaders and you have uh, um, uh, ethnographic researchers and you have uh, business leaders uh, all talking about the fact that, that this idea of where we get our meaning from is, a, is an opportunity to bind us together in a fractured world, particularly as we look to new models of work through the gig economy. Um, we look at the fact that more and more people are using modern technologies in ways that physically might, might separate or isolate them, and certainly on a daily case, um, daily basis may distract us in new ways. That sense of bringing it back to the bigger, greater sense of purpose and meaning was, for me, uh, about an hour and a half of kind of um, intense and, uh, and very powerful reflection that we're actually taking out of this and now trying to put into a number of different uh, pieces of work we're doing. So that was that's on the kind of small scale, uh, but nevertheless very powerful and I think an important topic for all of us to reflect on in our own careers and, and, and the organizations we're a part of. Um, on the biggest stage, um, I found it, uh, again, incredible the fact that, you know, we had the largest number of, of heads of state and government ever coming to Davos. Uh, um, I think more than 70 in the end of the 340 uh, political leaders were heads of state and government. I just, I found it incredible the the sense of alignment on that global stage about wanting to ensure that growth is sustainable, that international relations uh, work uh, better, uh, that, that, that companies and, and, and uh, governments work better together. 
this was a kind of a common uh, a common uh, thread in in all the speeches, and you can even see that in in President Trump's speech, which was touted as as being very much the America First speech. But you can see this sense of well, you know, we're in this together, and yet the theme of uh, creating a, a shared future in a fractured world was one where clearly people were worried that, that despite those aspirations, there was still uh, a large and rising number of risks, particularly geopolitically. Yep. And I guess that tension to me uh, is, is incredibly challenging. And it's one where I think uh, all of us, particularly at the organizational level, whether in government or business, we need new and better tools to assess that kind of risk and to contribute uh, as, as workers and as boards, organization, uh, to uh, reducing those risks, to making you know, the world and, and, and collaboration uh, more effective and, and more efficient. Nick, that's very interesting, because if we go back to the name of the organization, the World Economic Forum, it did begin with a focus on how companies operate and how economies uh, can support or sometimes undermine business activity. But over the years, the organization has embraced, obviously, from what you've said, um, broader issues of, well, you said it, of identity, of purpose, of community. And that leads me then to asking uh, briefly now about your new book published in January called Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And that is co-authored with Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chair of the forum, as you said. And just to pick up a uh, kind of a summary line from it. Uh, it focuses on how new technologies, above all, are both disrupting industries and markets and communities, but also how technology can be used to empower those very same communities. So, uh, Nick, uh, just to, to say it, the World Economic Forum does its work through these great gatherings uh, in Davos, and you've got a, a similar event in, in China every year. But it also communicates to the world, helps shape our meaning through publications. So let's focus on your publication, uh, The Fourth Industrial Divide. What were the first three? Yeah, so, you know, I think many of us will be familiar with the story of the, in, in the first industrial revolution or just the industrial revolution, which, you know, began uh, somewhere around about uh, 1750 or so in the UK, particularly in the textile industry. So the Really, the first industrial revolution was the mechanization of different processes in manufacturing, starting in, in how cloth was, uh, was woven, but also how wool and cotton were turned into uh, to thread in the first place. So the spinning jenny, the spinning mule. Um, it's, it sounds simple, you know, um, okay, thanks to some you know, precision instruments and a little bit of, of, of knowledge of, of, of fossil fuels and some more... Uh, Use of, of steam power, etc. Um, yeah, let's let's create a machine to do something that that, that humans can do, and, and certainly humans are tool users. But the uh, the, the first industrial revolution was uh, not just a uh, you know a period where people started to um, uh, make make life easier for a, a bunch of workers in one industry. It actually changed the face of Europe. It literally changed the the, the physical environment. Um, it, it created factories. It, it meant that people who had gone their lives waking up to the crowing of the, the cock in an agricultural setting were now waking up to or, or being called to work by a factory whistle, by a, a blast of a steam engine. Um, uh, people's daily rhythms moved to a 12-hour uh, rhythm of, 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 of the factory. And uh, the first industrial revolution was a huge um, uh, shift of, of where people lived as well, moving from the land into cities. 
Um, it, it, it was really a systems change, this first industrial revolution. What I think is less recognized is that uh, beginning at the end of the, the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, um, uh, while, you know, after Europe in particular and the, and the U.S. had moved through this period of, okay, everything's wood and sail and moved towards uh, metal and steam, this, the kind of idea of, of, of production in this, this sense, um, at the end of, of the, the 19th century, um, so just before the First World War, there was another revolution of capabilities, of, of science and applied technology uh, that changed everything again. So the world went from being one which was based on steam and uh, on, on mechanization uh, in, in the form of, of mechanical looms, et cetera, um, into one suddenly that, that started to experience the joys of electricity. Uh, we had the internal combustion engine and, and the motor car that, that came out of that period. Um, but we also had some incredible breakthroughs that we, we, we don't know about as much, I think, often, such as the creation of artificial fertilizer. Um, the Haber-Bosch synthesis process uh, in the early 1900s is, is the, the process of, of being able to feed the 7 billion people that live on the world uh, today. Um, and th that collection of inventions being applied in, 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 in industry um, changed the world again. So we moved away from uh, the steamship and we started to see other forms. We started to see gas turbine and, and other forms of, of, uh, of propulsion. Energy systems started to shift towards electricity systems and so on and so forth. And then about in about the 1950s, we had yet another revolution, um, which was really what we would call today the digital revolution. It was an information revolution. It, it completely changed the way that we, we, we analyzed and processed, uh, stored and communicated data. And I think the important thing about each of these industrial re revolutions um, is first that they, they change entire systems. They, they change the way we move, the way we communicate, the way, we, the way we, we produce stuff, the way we trade, the way we exchange goods, et cetera. Um, so they're not just a, a cool new app, a cool, a cool new technology that, that makes one factory um, uh, more efficient. It, it actually shifts the whole, the whole way that, that, that value chains and supply chains are, are configured and, and basically also who has power in that. The second thing that's really important is that each builds on the last. So the second industrial revolution, electricity, telecommunications, et cetera, none of those were possible without what, what the world had gone through in that first industrial revolution with the use of fossil fuels and the increasing uh, sense of, 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 of urbanization and population movements. And the digital revolution would be com is completely unimaginable today without the systems that were set up uh, around electricity and, and, and telecoms uh, before that really um, uh, or at least developed and conceived, if not completely scaled, um, in the first half of last century. Nick, I'm going to I'm going to have you hold that thought in that we need to take a very brief station break. So we'll come back right to uh, exactly where we are, thinking about the three prior revolutions and the way we do almost everything, and then the fourth industrial revolution, the topic of your book. Stay with us. We're going to have a brief break. This is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Just before the break, we were heading into the fourth industrial revolution. So pick up the thread there, and let's keep going on that topic. Yeah, so I think the, the fourth industrial revolution is this fourth wave of major change in the way that the world creates value, the way that we distribute it and exchange it. So, you know, if that sounds uh, a little bit um, abstract, um, we can see basically the, the fourth industrial revolution is what happens when you take all this amazing digital connectivity, the processing power of the smartphones that 
77% of American residents have today. And you take that for granted. And you think, right, what can I do with this? How can I build entirely new systems of, uh, of sensing the world, of machines talking to one another, of machines thinking in new ways, and of understanding the human body and, and the materials around us? Um, that's really the fourth industrial revolution. It's new business models, uh, it's new systems of transport, communication, and it's new ways of thinking about how, how, who we are as humans. And at the core of that, let me put my words on it, is information, its digital form, our ability to communicate extremely quickly, massive amounts of data, and maybe above all, put it to work, uh, hopefully for the better, but we also know it's disruptive. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the, the big thing here to realize and what we keep on harping on about in, on this topic at the World Economic Forum is that the more powerful that te technologies become, the more that they have the ability to do awesome things that improve our lives uh, or they have the ability to, 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 to hurt us in different ways. And the greatest social injustice of all the industrial revolutions we've seen before and, in fact, all the technologies around us the greatest social injustice is that the majority of people are left out from their benefits. And the second probably greatest in social injustice is that the people who get hurt are the people least able to afford getting hurt. So right now is the time that we need to start thinking about how to get that right as we enter into this uh, very exciting new world. Uh, let's come back to that side of the equation in just a moment. I want to focus also on how all these technologies you've just referenced can serve as enablers. Uh, just think about how we shop now online. But also they, as we know extremely well, they also can disrupt industries. They can um, turn labor markets on their head. Uh, governments for that well. Think about some of the issues now around uh, Facebook and uh, some of the information that may have been drawn from Facebook to pursue political ends. So let's talk about the disruptive effect of these new technologies, the fourth industrial revolution, on the companies that are using those technologies and in some respects even define them. Yeah, look, there are the company, companies themselves, particularly uh, companies that have uh, you know, not those that are just starting up today to take advantage of, of new technologies, but uh, the, the kind of big brands and institutions that we, we know and love, whether they're on the main street or, or they're, they're uh, you know, in, a, in supply chains, perhaps. Um, many of them are facing uh, huge stress and concern about the fact mm -hmm. that both new challenges and new models of operating are coming up. Um, which is putting sque it's squeezing margins. It's meaning that they're, they're, they're not getting uh, the, the investment money that they need to, to grow, finding it harder to borrow. Uh, they're, they're losing staff. There's a competition for talent out there for many, uh, for many uh, technical skills, particularly those that are on the cutting edge. And if you want to afford a, a really top-class, well-trained AI rate researcher or someone who's applied, you know, you've got to compete with uh, some very different firms today for that kind of skill. Um, and you're not competing just on salary, but on the opportunity to grow. Um, so what we can, what we've seen in, in media with the disruption in terms of business models and revenues from from from, from ads, etc., that kind of disruption is being experienced by more and more sectors and organizations around the world. Great. And then on the flip side, you also write in the book. You and Professor Schwab write about how the, the, the very same forces of disruption can also serve, if uh, mastered the right way, as, as uh, um, vehicles, really, to empower, to bring 
many people into the discussion that were left out in the past. So let's take a look at the affirmative side of all this, all these developments in the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, well, I mean, one example is is uh, the very and perhaps overhyped topic of uh, of the blockchain uh, and distributed ledger technologies. Um, People often say, well, you know, blockchain is great because it's, it's a secure distributed protocol that will be able to protect my data. Uh, perhaps there's a version of Facebook that can be on the blockchain so I know exactly who's using my data and I can receive also some money from when I get, when I, when that get used, et cetera. Probably the most interesting and impactful global use of, of distributed ledger technologies is not protecting the the data of, of, of a few hundred million uh, or, or half a billion uh, wealthy and well-connected people around the world. Uh, it's actually giving digital identity to the one billion people around the world that actually currently have no real formal identity and no way to access banking services, no way to access loans, uh, no way to, uh, to show and track their citizenship or their ability to, to gain health services, et cetera or even education and validate uh, what they've done and what they're good at. Uh, so that flip side is incredibly important because we have to uh, think positively about, well, what, we can, what can we do to include people as opposed to just making those of us who are already lucky a little bit better off? And Nick, just for uh, listeners, uh, blockchain may be not a terribly familiar term, but I think we all know about Bitcoin and how that's uh, kind of a, call it a cryptocurrency that uh, no bank, no fe- no central bank uh, controls, but it's out there. Let me, let me just stay on that for a minute uh, on the developments that illustrate what you've just said. I'm familiar with uh, the fact now that um, poor rural farmers in India... Now, with a smartphone, very inexpensive, uh, very uh, low rates to use it, can do what they did could not do in the past, which is to find the cheapest local source of fertilizer or seeds, or have a quick uh, obtain quick access to where they can obtain the best price for their products. So, in that vein, can you give us a couple illustrations, or at least one here, of how this uh, blockchain technology, Bitcoin, and so on? Uh, in in its many forms, I realize what I've just referenced is not what uh, falls within the blockchain category, but blockchains and more generally mobile banking and so on. How this is changing the world of, of actually hundreds of millions of people around the world. Yes, yeah, certainly. So um, a lot of uh, of this kind of blockchain, the, which is the it's the, really the the mathematics and the the, the uh, it's the algorithms and set of of, of um, uh, of, of models that go behind things like Bitcoin or Ethereum, these cryptocurrencies that, that don't require any central authority to, to administer, as you mentioned, um, it's still really at the kind of 0.1 uh, stage. Many of them are just starting to be experimented with, particularly in the social sector, but we're seeing it, seeing it uh, pick up more and more. Uh, and the advantage is it, it, it doesn't really, if you design it well, it doesn't require you to trust a, a single authority uh, to be able to uh, connect your data to uh, someone that, that that you do want to trust, and the problem with the billion people around the world that don't have uh, um, access to banking services or identity services is is often they don't trust their own governments um, because their own governments in many cases may be uh, either have poor cybersecurity or indeed may maybe have a record of oppressing people, of arresting them, tracking them down, etc. 
And it's also incredibly expensive for governments, uh, person by person, to enrol and, and manage digital identity. Uh, and in fact, um, India's just gone through that and, and, and done a very interesting uh, job with a, with a digital ID project that, that's now enrolled over a billion people uh, in their country. Um, but being able to make sure that this is uh, something that then you can trust and take to either an, in, in an international sense to someone overseas or a, or a refugee camp uh, or a local lender or someone else in, in your local community and have a trusted relationship without worrying about either your data or someone, someone managing that and using that to make uh, bad decisions on your behalf, uh, that's a really important way of bringing people into the global economy. Uh, and another example of this is just, uh, you know, it's just emerged over the last uh, five years with, with people who live in countries with very um, volatile currencies using Bitcoin to save money in something that is uh, hopefully for them will, be, will rise in value and not, not drop the way that perhaps they, they're worried about their, their local currencies will. Um, now, Bitcoin, no longer a very good example of that because it's hugely volatile itself. Um, but there is this idea that both for the purposes of, of securing your identity and data locally and the ability to engage across traditional geographic borders and, and linguistic borders, that these kind of technologies can, can really get away from the problem that governments have traditionally needed to be involved in these decisions. Um, and now I guess we're also seeing a little bit of a backlash against major corporations um, offering those kind of certif certified services. Um, so I think we'll see blockchain continuing to, to be interesting uh, as a way of getting away from, oh, gosh, I guess, you know, my choice is between trusting mm -hmm. one big brand or, uh, or, or, or one big brother in that sense. Let's go full circle back to the start of our conversation. We referenced the the motto, the, the guiding principle of the World Economic Forum, which is to improve the state of the world. The title of your new book with Professor Schwab, the founder and executive chair, is Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So we need to know what's happening, but uh, that term, shaping, is, is a strong term. So coming back to any maybe technology that you've referenced in the book and beyond. Uh, how is the World Economic Forum, and then also more personally, how are you and Professor Schwab going about shaping the fourth industrial revolution? I think we're trying to do three things in this, uh, in this domain because, you know, as I mentioned before, there's this, this idea that uh, today we can't wait. The, the, the rules and regulations, the corporate policies, the, the ways that we interact with technology uh, are, are being developed right now, particularly these uh, new technologies. Uh, people are writing drone law around the world right now. We've, we've just seen that um, in supporting the government of, of Rwanda on, on that, their, their, their project in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, so so we, can't, we basically we can't wait. And if we can't wait, if we have to really take an active role in, in shaping and driving what we want the future to look like, um, I think we need to do uh, three things. Uh, first of all, we need to think and shift our mindset beyond just looking at the technologies themselves and trying desperately to understand what the latest in artificial intelligence is and, and, and how a convolutional neural network is different from, from, from a Bayesian network, et cetera. Um, you know, which, which, just to say this, Mike, a lot of people do spend a lot of time thinking, of, uh, thinking about that even at the board level today. But shifting mindsets to, to think then less about the technologies and more about the systems and, importantly, the stakeholders, the people beyond the usual suspects. And look at who could mm. be affected and, and why. I mean, take a much broader perspective, a global perspective and, and, and a cross-industry perspective on this. 
Um, and the second thing is we have to realise that technology is political. Uh, some, a lot of people say, you know, technology is just a tool. Um, you know, um, algorithms don't kill people, people kill people kind of thing. Um, algorithms, uh, transport systems, highways, humans design them and they, they, we design them in ways that have outcomes that are really they're ethical. They have our values built into them. And the more powerful the technology we build, the more we need to worry about who's being discriminated against, who's being left out, what bias we have in there. Um, and the third thing is we need to empower people to really know where they have the power themselves. You and I have power uh, at the dinner table with our with our families about how we use technology. Um, there are many of your listeners who are going to be purchasing technology systems in their organisations who have the power to decide how that goes. And there are you know uh, uh, people around the world who are incredibly influential in investing and making decisions uh, with boards, uh, with uh, with startups that will could take us into very different futures depending on 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 how those are designed. Um, and so we're basically providing a handbook for thinking on the very personal level, but also on the big picture level, to then be able to go in and say, right, I know enough to act and hopefully act responsibly uh, with my peers uh, and, and hopefully inspire political leaders to do the same. And Nick, in terms of getting to political leaders and well beyond, I'm going to reference what I mentioned at the top of the hour when we got going, that you are involved on behalf of the World Economic Forum, building, sustaining communities in uh, the nonprofit, non-government world, in labor, and in uh, the, the world of uh, faith, faith communities. I take it from that that the World Economic Forum, with the ideas you've just uh, set forward, uh, is able to work in part because it's um, neutral ground. It's not government. It's not attached to any one ideology or any one country, and it can work through convening, uh, speaking with, and otherwise. Moving, you mentioned it, many stakeholders. Uh, say a few words, if you would, about how the World Economic Forum does go about the, um, <laughs> the agenda here of improving the state of the world, especially on the fourth industrial revolution. Sure. And it's no accident um, that, that, that you know, I, I get the privilege to lead the fourth industrial revolution as a theme in all its innovation and tech geeky glory. And at the same time, I'm responsible for our religious leaders, uh, our, our NGO community, our labor leaders and, and social partners in the unions. Um, that, that overlap between those two topics is incredibly important, and it's at the heart of how we try and shape discussions on technology. Um, and as an organization, we are incredibly careful about not uh, about about not being not being politically biased in any one in any in any direction. So we mm-hmm. we we deliberately make sure that with our relationships with with companies as well as our relationship with governments and others uh, that we don't rely on any of them. Uh, we're a membership organisation, but we're sufficiently diverse and diversified that we don't need to uh, feel at all uh, influenced by any one player. Um, and we consciously bring all these different perspectives together, even the really challenging ones, uh, uh, to to talk and to discuss on this. And just as one example, Cardinal Turkson, um, the the the, the uh, prefect of the Dicastery for, for Integral uh, Human Development, used to be you know, one of the, the the big leaders in the Catholic Church in down in Vatican City in Rome. Um, and and you know we we engage with him and his team as much as we engage with uh, technology leaders, as much as we engage with the, 
the unions, including the International Transport Workers Federation, who are absolutely um, you know, uh, motivated to think about the future of technology for their workers. So being able to bring these together and having that privilege that I mentioned of, of everyone wanting to come and feeling comfortable to discuss difficult topics together, that's what we believe can break through and open up um, uh, discussions and perhaps some difficult policy decisions that we think ultimately could make us better off than if we just work off in our own worlds, in our own silos, and hope that everything gets better. Nick, I'm, I'm thinking as I, I hear this really interesting commentary on your part that you're, um, the World Economic Forum and you and Professor Schwab and many others, the 700 people that run the World Economic Forum, are really almost contrarian in a world that has become more conflict-riven, more divided, uh, more broken up, uh, more segregated, if you will, where groups uh, have stopped talking to those on the other side of the divide. And just now to throw that back at you, it's always seemed to me that one of the great powers of the World Economic Forum is to do exactly that, to bring religious leaders together with those from universities, from non-government organizations, not to mention leaders of countries and certainly leaders of business. So what's your thought on this kind of a conversation is a, kind of a, almost a contrarian trend in the fractured world we live in. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting because the, in the 47, 48 years that the World Economic Forum has been around, uh, the idea that you should work across silos and industries and do more interdisciplinary work, you know, that was actually quite revolutionary, you know, 50 years ago, uh, wasn't done much when Professor Schwab started this organization. Now everyone talks about, you know, oh, we need to break down silos, we need to work together, we need to be more interdisciplinary. What I think that the forum uh, has learned over the years and the set of uh, tools and methods that, that, that I guess we've kind of developed, uh, you know, uh, the muscles we've developed over time, um, uh, they're important because it's actually really hard to do. It's not obvious uh, how you can get people who don't speak the same language uh, in, a, in a discipline or from a political perspective to speak the same language. And being able to create that safe space and broker partnerships, facilitate really productive interaction, um, it is contrarian uh, in a way. It goes against, I think, um, uh, both the incentives and the instincts of, of, of most disciplines and most reward systems. Uh, and yet it's probably the most important thing we can do, particularly at a time where technology and the systems around us are changing so quickly, we need to get a handle of, on these things as a global community. Uh, and that's the great challenge and the great responsibility, but also the great opportunity for, uh, for many of us. Nick, just to uh, personalize that a little bit, uh, witnessing on, on your stage um, illustrations of exactly that, I have seen leaders of Israel and Turkey on the same stage together talking about their own uh, their own circumstances and some of the conflicts they've had. I've seen President Putin and Michael Dell of Dell Computer on the stage together talking about some of the common ground and some of the places where they radically differ. And from that, I've taken a, um, I guess, an optimistic sort of conclusion myself that dialogue is always better than conflict if it can be managed, if the right people can be brought into the room, and if their dialogue can be communicated uh, far beyond the room. And we're getting close to the end now. If you could just say a few words about how the World Economic Forum, in addition to the great gathering in Davos, Switzerland in January, and several others around the world, how well beyond that you are eff making efforts to uh, take your ideas about improving the world, 
uh, this kind of intersectoral dialogue that we've just referenced and getting that out to readers, consumers everywhere. How do you do that? It's a look. It's a great question. We are, like many organisations now, as much a, um, a media organisation as anything else, because of the importance of communicating ideas, results, uh, relationships uh, around the world. And, and so, uh, so one of the things that we do is we work with our you know fantastic community who are willing to write and interact with us on on different topics. Our, our global future council, our expert network, and, and others. To, to, to blog and to, to chat and to challenge us in, in forums outside those that are kind of, you know, the, the big headline events around the world. Um, we also have, as I mentioned, uh, you know, these big long-running long projects, 14 big systems initiatives, uh, which, which generate and, and pull together billions of dollars in infrastructure development or agricultural uh, investment, um, uh, helping uh, countries work together in new ways with business uh, and with civil society to, to improve outcomes for smallholder farmers or to build big infrastructure projects that are lacking at the moment. And in San Francisco, mm-hmm. we're working on directly uh, uh, bringing together policymakers with technical experts, academics, uh, with civil society and with companies to, to look forward into some of the big challenges like, well, how do we regulate artificial intelligence and how do we think about autonomous vehicles? Uh, and that Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution is incredibly hands-on because the outcome that we want is more agile governance, more agile policy. Uh, and so we can really hold ourselves to account in that respect by saying, if we haven't seen people's behavior changing, if we haven't seen these kind of relationships, uh, not just uh, good chats, but, uh, but, but action and, and, and investment, uh, then we'll, we'll know we haven't succeeded. And, and what's kept me here for 11 years at the forum is that we are succeeding and there's always more to be done, but it's gratifying to be part of that process. Nick, with a very brief uh, minute and a half yet to go, let me end on a question that's, again, more personal. And that is if our listeners, and certainly including me today, would like to become more engaged in effective ways of improving the world, uh, who, who's not for doing that? We often lack the obvious means for achieving that, what guidance would you have for a person, make it uh, maybe 10 years your junior, who is looking to have a role in the world of making us a better place to live? What's your thought? I think the first one is not to underestimate your, the power you have in your community, uh, with your peers, uh, with your family, uh, immediately right now. I think we're, you know, the, the, our level of, our general level of engagement, particularly in developed economies, is much lower than it, than it used to be 10, 15 years ago. Our, the, the, the regularity with which we volunteer or contribute in different ways. And, and thinking globally, but acting locally, it's a, a little bit of a, a catchphrase, uh, but it's, it's the place that we can have the, the greatest power uh, and the, the best, best impact. Um, but always, you please, everyone should feel Feel, feel welcome to contact the World Economic Forum to look at the wealth of materials we have, because if there are ideas or connections or networks which can support you in your local effort with your organization, with your community or, or your country, we'd be delighted to support. Nicholas, close on that. If a listener would like to find out more about you, your work on the Fourth Industrial Revolution or the World Economic Forum, what's the best way to do so? The forum's website, uh, which is www.weforum.org, so that's w e f o r u m.org. Uh, from there, you'll get 
all the the, the beautiful, uh, crazy uh, messiness of, of of hundreds of different reports and, and projects that are that are running in different parts of the world in different industries. And we have a very active uh, social media engagement on Twitter and Facebook. So please feel free to engage with us there too. All right, uh, Nick, I really appreciate that. Appreciate you joining the program uh, from Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Mike. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.